0: And um, we are in Nehemiah chapter 9, that's page 404 in the Pew Bible, if you need that. If you're visiting with us or you haven't been in the evening in a while, we've been working through Nehemiah. um, The bulletin tells me it's the 12th sermon, so I I bet that's correct. Tammy's good at keeping track of that. Um, But we've had some starts and stops with it. Most recently with Cliff preaching the I Am sayings, but as they're at Boardwalk Chapel, we'll be back in Nehemiah 9, or back in Nehemiah and in chapter 9 tonight. And uh, we'll actually read just to verse, the penultimate verse, verse 37. Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, chapter 10 actually begins at verse 38. So we're going to handle verse 38 next time. This is the word of God. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God... For a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherabiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah and Patahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you've kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey or not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess, So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless... They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies." But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which... If a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. That they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. Because of our sins, they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing now upon the preaching of it. Great uh, revivals, great revivals, come with great repentance. Great revivals come with great uh, repentance. That is true uh, historically in um, on a national level, in terms of uh, revivals, it's, it's true even in a personal level uh, that great revivals will come with great repentance. That's why some pastors and theologians, um, historians, were critical of, of the recent uh, revival in um, Asbury uh, in um, Asbury College in Kentucky back in February uh, when when people visited or or went online and listened to some of the sermons that were being preached during the time or that kicked off this revival there was something uh, that they found was entirely lacking and that was any mention of sin or uh, the need uh, to confess sin before god or to repent of sin and that's why some were critical i say some were critical because I did not go online and listen and watch, and so don't come up to me and say, well, actually, that's not what happened. I'm just letting you know what certain people said about it. But, but historically, they would be right to say that that's a key component of revival. You need to have confession. You need to acknowledge sin. Uh, without it, that can't be a true revival. And the history of the church has shown that great revivals come with great repentance. And as I said, that's not just on a national scale. It's on a personal scale. If you want a great revival, and I hope you do in your heart, That is, if you want to increase of faith, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to draw closer to God, if you want to be brought to life again, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, then it's going to come with repentance. That is, it will come with the acknowledgement of our sinful condition and of God's gracious character and forsaking the former in pursuit of the latter, forsaking our sinfulness in pursuit of God's grace. Said Puritan John Owen, He that would be healed must first be sick, and he that desires to have his sin pardoned must first confess it. So, if we're going to be revived, brought to life, it begins by acknowledging our sin and turning from it. And we see that, indeed, at a national level in Nehemiah 9, a revival has been spreading through the return um, exiles since Nehemiah has completed the building of the wall a few chapters earlier. Um, And the last few chapters, we saw how the tribes gathered together to celebrate the Israelite holiday season. It began in chapter 8. That would have been about three sermons ago we considered this. Uh, If you look there at the beginning of chapter 8, or actually the last verse of chapter 7, the seventh month had come. And we talked about how the seventh month was, was the beginning of the holiday season for the Israelites because... Uh, It began on the first day of the month with the Feast of Trumpets. Then there was the Day of Atonement on the 10th day. And then the Feast of Booths began on the 15th day and ran for a week um, to the 22nd day. Then on the 23rd day, there was another holy convocation. And now look at our text, verse 1 of chapter 9. Where does the narrator situate us? We are on the 24th day of the month. The week-long Feast of Booths has now ended and this is significant because you'll recall previously when they had gathered for a revival where ezra was preaching for six hours or reading from the law for six hours and then they split into sort of small groups the the fathers went to uh the fathers of different households went to um have private bible studies with the, the various prophets and and priests um to better understand the word of god so they could take it back to their home one of the things that 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 Israel realized right away was um, how much they had broken the law of God, and they were grieved by this, and they they wanted to weep. But you'll remember that the Ezra, Nehemiah, and the other leaders said, "No, no, no." Do not weep. This this is not a time for weeping. Why? Because we were celebrating the holidays. This is a time for rejoicing. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. And what's the joy of the Lord? It was God's good pleasure. What brought a smile to God's face? It was to bring them back into the promised land. How can you be weeping and crying when God's so happy that you're here? And so it was not an appropriate time to confess their sin. It was an appropriate time to weep and to wail over their condition. But just because it was an inappropriate moment then doesn't mean it's inappropriate to do it. And that's why now, as soon as the feast is over, Israel realizes they have unfinished business. Starting at day one, they wanted to confess their sin. And they were told, no, we're going to hold off. We're going to feast, not fast. As soon as the feast is done now, the beginning of chapter 9, they say, we have unfinished business because we have unconfessed sin. And so... There's uh, uh, something here to be commended of Israel in that they they, um, they get back to finish that important work of confession. Unconfessed sin, friends, is always unfinished business. Unconfessed sin is always unfinished business. You might have some unfinished business that you'll need to take care of once you leave here, maybe with a spouse. You got in an argument on the ride over. Um, you haven't had a chance to to talk things through. It came in and now you're, you're here and you're sitting and you're hearing me and um, it would be inappropriate to say, let's let's leave and let's deal with this and then we'll come back. No, but maybe as soon as church is over, you have some unfinished business you need to deal with, with your spouse, with with your kids, with a coworker. maybe if you see them on Monday. Uh, no, you won't see them on Monday. When you see them on Wednesday, um, or maybe with the Lord, you have unfinished business that needs to be dealt with. Don't let sin go. Sin is serious. Don't take it lightly. Israel doesn't hear. And they give us a wonderful lesson in what real repentance looks like, a repentance that leads to revival. And they show us the confidence that we can have as believers that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the lesson here, that confession is good for the soul. The whole chapter of confession, in chapter 9, it's good for us. It's good for Israel and it's good for us. So, how do we do it? What does this repentance look like? Well, first, notice that the people come together and the first component is they acknowledge who they are. They acknowledge who they are. It's in verse Um, 1. They express this in physical ways even before they express it verbally because it says they come together with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, each of these things signifies an acknowledgement of their dreadful condition as sinners. So they abstain from uh, food as an indication of the seriousness of uh, of their sin. They cannot enjoy the delights of taste while their sin is before them. They wear sackcloth. It's a garment garment. Um, that was associated with funerals, with grieving, with mourning. We, we have something similar uh, still today where generally we wear black to funerals. And maybe sometimes uh, um, if you're wearing all black or you see somebody wearing all black, it's been said to you or you say to somebody, you know, who died? It's kind of like a joke we say when we see somebody in what we associate to be Funeral garb, grieving garb. So we say, oh, who died? And if you would have gone up to Israel and said that at this moment they're in sackcloth, oh, who died? Their answer immediately would have been, we should have. We should have. The wages of sin is death. We deserve the wrath of God. The curse of sin is that we should go to hell and we're not going to sugarcoat it. That's why they're, they're addressing this. They're acknowledging that they're sinners. And that's the point of of the earth, the dirt on their heads too. That preaches the reality of the curse of God from Genesis 3.19. Do you remember that? Genesis 3.19. By the sweat, this is what God says to Adam. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The nation is saying we get it, we know it, we believe it, we're weak, we're weak. We are mortal. We are nothing before Almighty God. We are dirt and dust. There's no pretense here. As I said, there's no attempt to sugarcoat their situation. They are acknowledging who they are. And in a word, they are sinners. They're sinners. Um, They're doing something uh, very similar to what Joshua does. Uh, If you want to turn there, it's Joshua 7. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 6. This is the chapter seven's the the tragic scene uh, where um, uh, the uh, Achan uh, committed a sin where he did not devote uh, everything from the city of Ai to the Lord. In fact, he stole some of the stuff that was supposed to be devoted to God, and so the punishment was that Israel is actually defeated at Ai. And so they're, they're grieving and they're mourning that, that the Lord has turned against them, that his anger has broken out on them. In verse 6, this is how Joshua reacts. He tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. It's a profound admission. Lord, before you, we are as good as dead. Before your holiness, before your majesty, before your righteousness, because of who we are. We are sinners. So therefore, before you, we are as good as dead. And so, friends, when we come before the Lord, real repentance starts with acknowledging who we really are. This is an important point uh, in terms of understanding what the Bible says about humanity and our condition and sin. We are not sinners because we have sinned. It's the exact opposite. We sin because we are sinners. That's who we are. That's who we are. We sin because we are sinners. Uh, Some Sunday mornings we use a prayer of confession. You should recognize it by now. Uh, This comes initially from the English Reformation, Thomas Cramner. These words, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Now, for some people, that might sound odd or maybe even wrong, right? Is it right or proper for a Christian to confess original sin, right? The state that we are born into, to say that there's no health in us when we have Christ, right? Now that we have Christ, now that we're believers, isn't there health in us? Are we still miserable in that sense? And the reality is, without Christ, there is no health in us. He is our health. And when you confess sin, you are not confessing what you have with Christ. What Christ gives you. Who you are in Christ. You're confessing the ways in which you go back to the old man. The ways in which you sin against God by not uh, living in light of the gifts of Jesus Christ. And so you say... God, apart from Christ, there is no health in me. And I see that because I keep sinning. Left to myself, I am just one who sins time and time and again. In one sense, as one pastor said, we are miserable offenders now, even more than before we were converted, because now we sin against grace. Now we have the gospel, and we sin against it. What tragedy that is. You know, this is the same reason Paul cried out in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am. He said that when he was a believer. Right? He didn't say, I used to be a wretched man. I am a wretched man. That's who I am. Who will deliver me from this bondage? And what's his answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. We need to acknowledge who we are in ourselves so that we can be something so much more in Christ. We say, I'm a wretched man, but thanks be to God. I was speaking with someone recently who was saying they had a problem with one of the membership vows that we require new members to, to take. We got to see that last week um, when we received new members. Uh, and it was the vow, they had an issue with the vow that goes like this. Um, it's number four, I think. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness... You abhor and humble yourself before God. And they didn't like it because of the language of sinfulness, because of your sinfulness. Uh, do they make mistakes? Sure, right? Do we sin? Well, who doesn't? But sinfulness, that's a condition, that's a state, that's, that's saying something about me. And, and it, it struck them as, well, it didn't seem to square with the, percep- the perception they had of themselves, right? They were a good person after all. And I have to say, I, I, really, um, I, I really sympathized. With this person's objection to the vow, because you know I feel like a pretty good person too, and my guess is most of you feel like you're pretty good people, right? And so then to say something like I have sinful, I am sinfulness, and I abhor myself, well, that doesn't really square with you know I'm not pillaging villages and and, and all these things. We think of these big sins, but see that's the problem. Anytime we think we're good people, it's because we have you know we have um, curated a list of other people. Compared to which, we are pretty good. But that's, <laughs> that's not how it works. When God says you're a sinner, he's not comparing you to somebody who might sin more often. He's comparing you to his holiness and this law of perfection and the demands that are placed upon us. God says the determination of whether, we, whether or not we are good is not if we feel like it. I feel like a good person, or I don't. No, no, no. That's not the determination. But rather in how we conform to his holy character and the way that he fashioned us from the very beginning to be a perfect reflection of him. And when we do that, the only proper response is, I am a sinner. That's what Israel does here. That's what the fasting is for. That's what the sackcloth is for. That's what the dirt on the head is about. They're saying, we are sinners. Not that we sin they will talk about that in a minute. First, they're saying we are sinners. They acknowledge who they are. Second, though, they they get more specific and they acknowledge what they've done. Our confession of faith says men ought not to content themselves with a generic or general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. And that's what they do here. Uh, Notice in verse 2, first, before they do this, they separate themselves from all foreigners. Do you see that in verse 2? Now, that isn't so much as though they're forsaking the idols of foreign lands or, or the customs of foreign people. Uh, commentators have suggested, actually, they're separating themselves from proselytes. You know, that's Gentile people who have converted to, to um, the nation of Israel. And they're separating themselves because right now what they're about to do is they're about to deal with their sin and their ancestors' sin. This is their problem, nobody else's. And so they're, they're, they're separating themselves to say, we're not going to point the finger at these people who have been living with us now as though it's their fault. No, we're going to talk about our sin, boys and girls. You, you know what this is like. Mom and dad catch you doing something, and if you're with your sibling, my guess is at some point or another, you've probably pointed the finger at your little brother or sister and said, well, they made me do it. Or, I, you know, I only did that because they first, whatever it is, right? We, we love to have somebody else to blame. And here Israel is saying, we're going to remove ourselves from the people that we must, most likely would point the finger at. And we're going to say, no, this is about us. Israel is coming before their God as his people. They're owning their sin. They're saying, we have been given a standard. We are the covenant people. You've given us your law and we've sinned. Now, what ways have they sinned? Well... To explain it, they need to go way back to the beginning, the whole way back to the beginning. One scholar says we have in this passage the fullest summary of the Old Testament, the fullest summary of the Old Testament. So they go back the whole way to creation, right? Uh, Verse six, they've sinned against the maker of the universe. He's the maker of them, though, as a particular people, because he called Abram out of Ur the Chaldees and entered into a covenant with him, verses seven and eight. Uh, so they've sinned against uh, the maker of the world, the creator of the world, the Maker of the covenant maker of, of the nation. The, they've sinned against the Savior of, of their people, too, verses 9 through 15. He's the one who rescued them from Egypt. And so this is all sort of like a prelude that's just uh, going to um, emphasize how bad the sin is, because this is how great God is. This is all he's done. And then we get to verse 16, and the sins just start piling up. There's actually a poetic form to the confession. Uh, they, they confess their sin in, in an ABBA form. So you could call it a chiasm. My Hebrew professors would call it a chiasm. I'll just say it's ABBA. So what that means is uh, uh, confession 1 and 4 rhyme and confession 2 and 3 rhyme. So look at this. Confession 1 is in verse 16. How, what does it say there? Verse 16. It says, their fathers acted presumptuously in thinking they knew better than uh, than God, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Uh, verse 18, second confession, they committed great blasphemies. Verse 18, uh, that is in creating the golden calf. Verse uh, 26, this is the third confession that rhymes with the second one, and that's committed great blasphemies. It comes up again, they were disobedient, and they rebelled, and again, we're told they committed great blasphemies blasphemies this is during the time that we know as judges to second kings uh, that's the time period they're referring to and then look at verse twenty nine and you warn them in order to turn them back to your law yet they acted presumptuously that's the first confession too so verse sixteen and verse twenty nine go together in acting presumptuously in the middle verse 18-26, they committed great blasphemies that's that's this historical overview of, of of their ancestors. This is how they have sinned. They've acted presumptuously and committed great blasphemies. Well, it's one thing to own up to your parents' mistakes or your grandparents' mistakes uh, to say, yeah, maybe they weren't the greatest people in the world, but now those in Jerusalem go on to say, we have sinned too. Look at verse 33. They say, it's not just that generation, it's ours Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. What has come upon them? The exile. That's what they're talking about. The fact that we got kicked out of the land, and now we pay taxes to the king of Babylon. You've been righteous in all that's come upon us, for you've dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. They own it. We have done it. We've acted Wickedly, they've already established what wickedness is. Wickedness is acting presumptuously. It's assuming that you know better than God. It's it's committing great blasphemies. It's worshiping other gods like the golden calves. It's murdering the prophets and not listening or obeying to God's word. And, And then they go on more specifically. Look at verse 34 and following. They say, our kings, they're talking about their generation, our princes, priests, fathers have not kept your law. They haven't even paid attention. They're not even listening to you or the warnings you give. Even in this land, verse 35, even in their own kingdom amid your great goodness that you gave them in this large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works and the they is them. They're talking about their people. We haven't done this. They own it. And tonight the question is, have you owned your sins? Have you owned your sins? Not just that you sin, right? That's the first thing. You acknowledge who you are. I'm a sinner. But... God requires that all men confess of particular sins particularly. Have you owned your particular offenses before God? Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book. It's called Revival. And he says this, You cannot, of course, repent unless you face the facts. And he goes on to say it's more, though, than just facing the facts. It's what you do with the facts. And that's the difference between repentance and remorse. Listen to this. He says, Having faced the facts, the question is, Do you go on to repentance? There's a cursory, superficial facing of the facts that's of no value. The man who suffered remorse is a man who, in a sense, looks at the facts but does not spend time with them. Ah, he says, I was a fool, I should not have done that, and I'm suffering now because I did it. But then he forgets it and he goes on. That is remorse and that is of no value. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, there is no hope of revival apart from this. It is an awakening to the situation. It's a consciousness of the seriousness of the situation. Do you recognize how serious your sin is? The sin you committed this morning. The sin you committed this afternoon. The sin you will commit tonight. It's serious. And it's so serious it demands more than a passing. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that and, you know, there might be some consequences. No, 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 no. It demands that we sit with it. Real repentance means you sit with your sin. You sense, this is our catechism, right? Uh, It says that a a, a believer out of the sense of the odiousness of his sin turns from it and unto God. The odiousness of it. That's something that you can't let go, right? When there is an odor in the house. One room is just mysteriously smelling weird. That's Carrie Ann and I have this this thing. We don't know what it's about, but anytime we get back from a vacation or we're gone for a week or two weeks, we're just always like, "So, what part of the house is going to smell weird? Like, what animal died while we were gone? Who forgot to take out the trap? I mean, I would have been me." But there's just you know, and when you have that odor, you don't just go, well, "That smells terrible in here." But let's just keep living our lives. No, you you, you want to do something about it. Your sin is odious. You got to turn from it. Do you sense the seriousness of your sin? Have you sat with it? That's a key to real repentance and revival. But there's one final key component uh, to the repentance of the nation that we need to give attention to. And it's the most important component to real repentance. They've acknowledged who who they are, and they've acknowledged what they have done. Finally, though, I want us to see. It's the most important part. They acknowledge who God is in what God has done. And this is so important because if you don't do this, you'll never actually repent. Again, our catechism talks about out of the sense of the the seriousness of our sin, the odiousness of it, but also an apprehension of the mercies of Christ, a sense of who God is and what he's going to do, we turn. If you think your sins are bad, but you don't know there's a God who's got his arms wide open saying, come to me, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to accept you, I'm going to clean your slate in the blood of Christ. If you don't know that, you'll never have anywhere to go. You'll be stuck in introspection. You'll be stuck in despair. Yeah, you'll know you are a sinner. Yeah, you'll know you've sinned. But that's not repentance. Repentance is running into the arms of Jesus. And we see they, they do that. They run into the grace of God. So remember, look at those four verses I highlighted where the people confess their sin. Uh, that was verses 16, 18, 26, and 29, right? The ABBA, they acted presumptuously, committed blasphemies, committed blasphemies, and acted presumptuously. Look at those verses again. And in each instance, what do we find immediately follows? They acknowledge their sin and then immediately follows a declaration of God's goodness and God's grace. So, verse 16. The people acted presumptuously in wanting to go back to Egypt. Now look at verse 17. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Verse 18, they committed blasphemies by worshiping the golden calf. And then verse 19 says, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 26, they committed blasphemies by not listening to the prophets. But then verse 27, we read this. In the time of suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies referring to the judges in verse 29 more presumption more sin, but then verse 31 more grace and more mercy nevertheless in your great mercies You did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God so reviewing their history show them their sin But it taught them this about God, that his grace is always greater than their sin. It has always been greater than their sin. It will always be greater than their sin. You see, as they reviewed the way God treated them in the past, they had confidence that this is how he'll treat them in the present. Before our people cried out and they said, We need help. Even though we're terrible sinners, we need help. And you did not forsake them. That's how they have the confidence in Nehemiah 9 to cry out. We need help. We're sinners. We're offenders. And they have confidence that God will hear them. So they can say in verse 32. Now therefore our God. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you. That's come upon us. Upon our kings, princes, priests, prophets, fathers, people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Since the time we were taken into exile. Now this is really interesting. I want you to think about what they're saying here. So first, this prayer has been essentially all confession, all adoration. Here's the first petition, right? This looks kind of uh, lopsided, it, or this isn't lopsided. Our prayers are lopsided. This looks different than most of our prayers, right? We begin with, the, you know, the the spiritual grocery shopping list that we give to God. with well, this is all the things I want and all the things I need, and then maybe we throw in and forgive us our sins. Amen. This is all confession, all adoration, and only then, do they make a request? But but look at that request. This is after they have just listed all the terrible things they've done. And they say... They say to God, Let not all the hardship that we've gone through seem little to you. Um, they're asking God to look upon the difficulties that they've experienced, difficulties that are on account of their sin, and they're asking God to be merciful to them. Um... Isn't that kind of, I don't know, gutsy? Is it, you know, that's how I read it. Do you, do you sense that, that? this, You know, wow, after all that, now they're going to ask God to pity them? Seriously? You know, what guts, what arrogance, uh, what presumption? But then I remember the gospel and I say, no, 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 what faith? What faith of these people? Those who know who God is and what he's like recognize this is exactly how to come to him even though you've sinned terribly against him, you come and you ask for stuff and you ask for mercy and you ask for love and you ask for kindness and you ask for forgiveness, even when you deserve the exact opposite because this is what God does. This is who he is. And if you haven't done that yet today, you haven't repented. In fact, you've missed the whole point of repentance. Repentance is to restore our relationship to God and so to think on our sinfulness and our sins and not then repair to Christ. For his saving grace, that's just to wallow, that's just to despair, that's to be, you know, just to navel gaze. That is not repentance, that does not restore our relationship to God. God demands repentance, not so that you would feel bad about your sin, but so that you would feel freed from your sin. Lloyd-Jones, again, says this, If you stop in your sins, if you stop in the dust, in the ashes, and in the sackcloth, I say, you're not scriptural. You must go on from that and look to Christ and apply again this truth to yourself. You must be certain that you end in a condition of thanksgiving and praise with the realization that your sins are covered and they're blotted out and that you're renewed and that you are able to go forward. That's why I say acknowledging who God is and what he's done. That's the most important part of repentance. Not acknowledging our sin, not acknowledging the sins that we've committed or that we are sinners, that's that's vital. But the most important part is acknowledging who God is and what he's done. That he's a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why Israel could worship even while they confessed. I I just have always found that fascinating. Verse 3 of our text. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Here it is. For another of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Those two ideas are not mutually exclusive They come together. Confessing our sins is a way we worship God because when we confess them, we are simultaneously acknowledging that he is a God who's glorious in his grace. Glorious in his forgiveness. So, friends, remember that that's the God you're coming to. You're coming to a God of grace, not an implacable tyrant. You're coming to a father who wants to forgive you. And so what reason is there uh, not to come? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great revivals come with great repentance. We can and we should pray for revivals in this city and in this nation. But first, pray for a revival in your life and in your heart. And it could begin tonight if you are willing to confess your sins to the God who loves to forgive them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for this chapter in Nehemiah where we uh, learn of what it means to own who we are and what we have done, but to do that before God, who is grace, who is love, who is mercy. And you are all these things to us in Jesus Christ. You did not spare your own son, but you gave him up freely for us to free us from our sin. Uh, we have no reason to fear, then, um, to come to you, to acknowledge um, sincerely and entirely our shortcomings, our offenses, our transgressions, and our iniquity. For you are the God who loves to forgive. We, we know that if we keep silent, if we do not confess, it, it's, it's like a death blow, our bones waste away. But when we confess our sins... Uh, You restore us to you, and you give us the joy of salvation. So do that even amongst us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.